Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP. Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP, Town Hall. Hello, uh, welcome to episode 59 of the PHP Town Hall podcast. We are back today with the second part of Startup Life, which we did last week. So we have the same exact people here today. We have Amanda Folsom, Chris Bowden, Daniel Cousineau. And Michael Wells. Uh, thanks for joining us again, everyone. Let's do a real short uh, recap with our guests. You could just spend you know, 60 to 120 seconds on who you are and maybe a bit about your experience for those that missed last week. And we'll start with you, Chris. Uh, I'm Chris Bowden, uh, software engineer for like 15 years. I live up in Canada. Um, my specialization, I guess, right now is apps and messaging. and Done a bit of everything. Nice. All right. Cousineau. Uh, hi. I'm Daniel Cousineau. Uh, currently helping found a startup called Auto, where we are working on providing a platform for uh, private and off-market real estate listings. Previously, I've been at startups large and small, from 200 people to nine people. And basically, my entire life has either been at startups or agencies or anything there in between. Nice. All right. Michael Wills. Yeah. So my name is Mike Wills. I'm currently the Vice President of Engineering at Moonrise. Um, my background is a self-taught engineer uh, for about 20 years now. And I've gone from huge, you know, military, enterprise, DOD, government uh, things. And every time I get into a smaller company, I'm happier. So I've, I've found my, my love in the startup world. Nice. All right. Uh, also, for those in this last week, I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, we covered a, a wide variety of topics, mostly dealing with um, you know what you look for in a startup, big versus small, a little bit on different series, and then um, some issues as it pertains to management of the startup, uh, particularly hiring and firing and layoffs. Um, so definitely check that out. Today, we're going to just start jumping in because we have a, a long list. So let's start out with salary versus options. So this is one thing that um, is really kind of a big decision to make when you're going to a startup. Most startups think of themselves as you know a rocket ship or the next Google or whatever. Um, and hopefully you can somewhat buy into that story if you're gonna take a job there because you, you wanna take a job somewhere you're excited about. But um, there's a certain amount of hedging with your risk you wanna do. You know, you're already making your salary from this company. Do you also wanna put even more of your potential future in there, right? And this is kind of where the balance comes between salary versus options. Do you want the option of, you know, being rich one day from this, or do you want a steady income? Um, and you can you definitely have both, but um, let's talk about that balance a little bit. So who has thoughts? Yeah, so I've kind of done both. Honestly, uh, I've chased the options for a little while, and then I've also chased the money for a little while. Um, 
options are great. Uh, like I was in a position where I could deal with not having the steady income so much. Um, I, I mean, it was a little difficult to save money sometimes, but that wasn't a huge problem. Uh, whereas like people with families have definitely struggled with that. And uh, I tend to find that uh, for some people, having the money in the bank means a lot more than having the options at a future time. Um, and honestly, I, I kind of lean more towards that now. I mean, I don't really have a family, but having the money is nicer. Um, I can invest it how I want. Uh, there's really, it's a little bit slower to grow. Maybe uh, the, the payoff maybe isn't as big, but I like the stability of it a lot more. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Not that I'm against options, but I would rather have money in my pocket paying my rent. <laughs> what yeah. about exposure? <laughs> anyway, for anyone who see the, the comic, there's a comic person who tries to buy, pay their rent with exposure because you always get that freelancing client. It's like, hey, you'll get exposure from this. I don't need to pay you. All right, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think I think that's a whole other um, conversation there on <laughs> um, salary versus options versus exposure. Um, I, I enjoy options. Um, I think it's a nice benefit. Um, but personally, um, I, I'm kind of you know settled down. I've got three kids. Um, I'm very much like a cash is king kind of person, and so like my approach to this conversation is um, very much like. You know, let's talk about salary is like, okay, this is what you're going to pay me. And then options are kind of like, a, almost like a bonus for my performance. Like that, that's a, an, an added on um, benefit, you know, so you know, I'm going to perform for you and I'm really bought in. But for me, the, the salary has to be there first and foremost. And for the same reason Amanda said, I mean, it, it gives you like the, um, the, uh, like, an option is like you can, an option is just the only, an opportunity to invest in this one thing and that's it. Whereas salary, like I can invest that in whatever I want to. So I uh, have a very uh, long string of hundreds of thousands of options from many several startups that are worth uh, not a whole hill of beans. Um, so I have been for quite a while leaning heavily towards salary. So typically for me, whenever I come into a startup, it's salary is going to be the first thing. Um, I look at options both as a bonus for performance, more so in a did uh, the startup perform well, but I also kind of treat options as a given. Like if I'm coming into a startup, I'm taking the cash, but at the same time, I recognize that I'm coming into a startup. I'm not getting Google, Facebook, Amazon, well, not really Amazon. Uh, I'm not getting, you know, the big four cash. We're, I'm taking, usually taking a haircut. Um, so I consider the, like, the options to be a given. The cash has to be there. Uh, and I really start evaluating it based off of, like, my career trajectory. What do I need? What kind of things do I want to work on? What kind of things do I need for my resume? And this is the kind of advice I give other people coming into startup, like, Always ask for as much cash as you can. Somebody trying to way slash the already low amount of cash for more options is probably not a good sign because frankly, with all the ways that somebody can dilute your shares or anything like that, if you're not on the founding team, your options are at best a down payment on something as opposed to anything life changing. Uh, so really dig in to think, I always think about what is this position? What is this opportunity going to give me? What's the cash going to be? And then 
you know, the options are, you know, sweetener on the pie. It ideally would be there. Um, and if not, maybe I don't stick around for dessert. So, yeah, um, I think a lot of people have started looking at options as actual money in their pocket. And I think that's how a lot of people have gotten into trouble. Um, you know, it's great when somebody offers you 50,000 options, but it's fake money. Whatever they tell you that it's valued at, it's, it's not real until anybody either comes to buy those from you or they IPO or something like, um, so people count on that. They do the math. They add that as part of their assets and it, it's really not, it doesn't mean a whole lot until you can actually do something with it. Yeah. What I would encourage everyone to do really too, is like actually sit down and do the math because a lot of people here. 50,000 options or 100,000 options or whatever. And that feels like a really big number. But if at your current valuation, that option is actually worth five cents, right? That's not much. Also, it's worth looking at, okay, so what salary cut am I taking? Then when do these vest? So if you're taking, uh, so I had a friend recently that had a really nice options package, right? Um, I don't name names or anything, right? He had a, a very nice package. But I actually like to sit down and talk to the numbers with him. And so, okay, he's taking, it was about 60 grand less a year than I own in salary. And he has a heavy options package. Well, even if those options mature and he makes money on them, he just gave up three years while he's vesting of actually making 60 grand more a year, right? So he could have made 180 grand and put that in an index fund and that could be worth whatever in so many years. And that's a sure, almost a sure thing. Versus options, which are anything but. Yeah, I've I've done similar exercises where you sit down and you go, okay, listen, I'm taking a twenty. Let's call it like a twenty-five grand a year haircut uh, for this startup, and I've got these options that let's even say middle case scenario, these options will net me say a hundred thousand dollars. That sounds fantastic. I get a hundred thousand dollars. But then I have to account for the fact that, okay, well, what do I pay to exercise these options? Yada, yada, yada. Even after all the exercising and taxes, if, if you were to say like, hey, your options after exercising and taxes are worth $100,000 and you took a 25 grand pay cut, well, I've got bad news for you. You would have had an extra 100 grand over the four years that your options probably vested. You would have already had that in the bank. Like I actually like, I had um, one company once like really trying to push home like, oh, you know, like, you know, we're, we're, we're being really nice to you. We're, we're giving you these options and yada, yada, yada. And like, I literally had to pull somebody aside and be like, you realize that if I left this company and took another job, the cash I would make literally uh, by the like the ninth month, the cash that I would make would more than make up for what the options are worth now. And even on the upside, you guys wouldn't be able to beat that four years, you forget that like, oh, that's $100,000. Well, and I'm taking a $25,000 pay cut. Obviously, that's bigger. Well, no, you multiply that by four years. That's $25,000 every year for four years. That's a hundred grand right there in actual cash that you can put towards rent or a boat or a house or something like that. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't recommend anyone go like completely towards salary because optionality in life is a very good thing, right? And it's good to have that like skin in the game of the company where the company does great, you do great. Um, and that's really part of the startup gamble. Uh, but I definitely wouldn't make it a large percentage of you know, my package. Yeah, I think something else to consider. Oh, go ahead, Chris. So, something else to consider too is uh, I'm also in a position now like where the shares are vested and then they want to keep you around still. So 
you can always buy more into it or perhaps profit sharing, depending on how the co- company is structured. So you can still get more out of it while still having your options. Uh, I agree with everyone though. I've always gone the cash heavy because my theory is, okay, so if they're worth as much as you say, uh, let's say the company is a unicorn, turns into a billion dollar company. That's still a lot of money for me, even though it's a really small chance. Um, if the company's that just successful, like it makes, you know, um, several million, that's a decent chunk of change. But if you took the options, you still could have accumulated more with salary over the years. And then there's the worst case scenario. Like if the company doesn't succeed at all, you're left with nothing in your hand. Yeah. I was just going to add in, like I view options as, I mean, you always want to look at your total compensation package. And so that includes salary options. Like, you know, if there's like, Typically, if options are involved, like RSUs and equities, not, but you, you want to like think about all these things and you want to, it, like Amanda said, it, it's, it's monopoly money. It, it's, it's, it's worse than the stock market. It's not even real money. Um, because you have to get permission to sell it on a private market. Um, the company always has buyback, um, potential. You have to look at your vesting schedule. Um, Vesting schedule is a big thing. I have, um, I know people that are a lot of companies these days are like spending a lot of time on like very long in the private market. So your Ubers and such. If you want to leave the company, you now have to make this decision of like, Oh God, I either have to write a $1.5 million check or I just let go of all of that. Um, or I can't leave that company. Um, and so these are all things you, you, you have to, to weigh into it. Um, and I mean, it's, it's very confusing. Talk to a lawyer, talk to an accountant, um, because there's a lot of things at play when you're, when you're going into an options motion. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Sorry. And, uh, like, like Michael's just said, like, you gotta be careful of predatory businesses too. Um, like, First of all, see what you're, how you can exercise and if it screws you over, like you've heard the horror stories about Uber, like where you have to pay so much to get out and exercising is a gamble on its own sometimes, depending on how the company structured it. And, um, I had someone tell me a horror story. It was, um, um, uh, then CEO actually, where he said they got him, uh, he, they, when he got hired, they got him into the company, gave him shares, equity in the company. Um, but the way they structured it was that when the company went bankrupt, he was on the hook to pay, um, the lenders back money, even though he didn't put money into the company, like it was incredibly predatory. And he said, be very careful about that, that if they do well, you get your money, but if they make poor management decisions that you're not on the hook and have to pay out the debt of your shares. That's ridiculous. I've never heard of that, but I did want to mention, um, the, like the payout like an ISO is just, it's an option. You have the option to purchase a unit of stock and there are various categories of units of stock. Um, the investors are going to get paid out first, no matter what. The co-founders are getting paid out next, no matter what. And then everyone else is getting paid out. And so your number of 35,000 or whatever outstanding, you know, 35,000, uh, you know, shares of 4.5 million outstanding. Might seem great, but you really got to look at where you're at in the pecking order of where payouts are actually going to happen. And then you have minimum 
minimum payouts, especially whenever you see companies doing like later rounds. Typically, those investors have uh, preferential payouts. Uh, yeah, if you're talking about being on the hook and unrelated to stocks, like there are, uh, um, I've heard horror stories, not even just stocks, like and other companies where you, you do certain kinds of certification and the company basically signs something and hands it to customers that effectively puts certain employees personally liable for certain portions of the business. Those are like the, the most horror of the horror stories. Uh, but what I was thinking about the horror stories specifically, Related to the stocks, because there were a couple stories whenever Microsoft bought out GitHub. There was one story that was going around the news where, like, this one woman that was an early employee and all of her friends were like, Oh my God, you must be rich now. It's like, No, I couldn't afford the, you know, couple hundred grand it would have taken to exercise my options and they expired after, you know, 90 days. So, like, I got nothing out of that, you know, seven and a half billion dollar acquisition. Oh, okay. So, on that, what are some, there are very various options. That's a double whammy, right? There's definitely different ways you can go about exercising your options in different funding sources. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? I'm, I've never been in a situation to do that, so I don't even know all the details. So can, can I just talk about how options work really quick at a, a base? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We discuss like different types of not just options, right? But maybe options and equity, et cetera. Yeah, so an, an option in general, um, it's called an ISO, and it's an individual stock option. And um, it it the the option part comes in is that you have the option to purchase a unit of stock. So when you join a company, let's say you're offered one hundred and thirty thousand dollars and seventy five thousand, um, you know, ISOs that will vest at a certain schedule. It's typically four years. Um, Nothing will vest your first year after then. Um, I might be getting my terminology incorrect here. Um, I believe that's called your cliff. Um, but basically, you know, you start vesting on a monthly schedule at a certain point in time. So you've worked there for a year after, you know, let's say you start in January. So January of your second year, you vest, which means you have the right to purchase one of those options. So they gave you, what did I say? 75,000 ISOs. Um, you know, at the end of that first month, you have the right to purchase one thirty-sixth of seventy-five thousand stock units. Um, you're also given a strike price when you first like accept those those ISOs. Um, and ISOs are given out not only when you join the company, but like promotions, bonuses, those sorts of things. Um, and the strike price is typically set by an independent board. That says, you know, this is what the stock of this company is worth because they're not on, you know, the NASDAQ or anything else. Um, so what you do is you, you buy, now you have to pay your money, real money. It's not, you, you don't own stock. You own the right to purchase stock. Um, and so you have to spend your money to, to buy these things. Typically, what happens is you'll wait until like, oh, I'm leaving the company or there's some sort of like liquidity event, something like that. Um, there are special case scenarios. But what it comes down to is there's a point in your time where you're like, oh, it's a good idea to buy these options. And then you do the math. Oh, my strike price is a dollar per unit. I have 70, 75,000 ISOs. All of a sudden, I have to come up with $75,000. Um Otherwise, you don't own anything. Like all you have is the right to purchase it. You don't own anything until you actually spend the money. 
And that's where a lot of people get in trouble when they're thinking about options and trying to weigh it in is not factoring in that you got to write a big check to get this. I don't know if anyone else has like input on like how ISOs work or that was kind of like a really brief non-legal synopsis. <laughs> it's good when my, my, my experience with ISOs has mainly been as uh, uh, coasters for my drink on my desk. Uh, this is about as far as uh, I've gotten with uh, uh, stock options. All right. So, I mean, this, this is kind of where um, you, you get into, uh, we mentioned some of the companies that stay private for a very long time. Um, and employees get stuck because they want to leave the company, but they have, you know, 500,000 ISOs through promotions and everything they've signed for their strike. Every time you're given a new allotment of ISOs, you're, you'll be given an allotment at the current strike price that the, the independent board has set it at. So, I mean, you might, when you first join, you might have strike prices at 50 cents. And then you get a promotion. Um, the strike price is $1.25. And then you get another promotion. Oh, the company's doing great. Your strike price is five, you know, five dollars. And you, you get these allotments of like, oh, you can purchase a hundred thousand at a dollar, forty thousand at five dollars. There comes a point in time where you want to leave the company and you're like, all right, you know, I've got this great option over here, but you have five hundred thousand dollars. Or you have 500,000 potential units of stock in this company that you think is doing great and you only have six months to buy them. Otherwise they expire and they're nothing. You, you well, and also there's another piece of that too, right? Because each allotment has a different vesting schedule. So that first allotment might invest in three years, that second invest in three years, right? But then you're, so even though you technically got this money, they invest in different schedules. So that's where you really get stuck in this whole like, okay, if I just stick it out one more year, then I'll have this much. Right. Um, and then you get into that problem that you're talking about too, Mike, where you get that exercise. Did they lose Mike? Uh, looks like he froze. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'll take it up from here from, with what I know. Um, all right. So the idea of exercising is that, you know, so um, trying not to get too financial technical, but in order to get an option, you have to be able to exercise it, which means um, basically you're buying the stock in order to exercise the option or you're selling the stock in order to exercise the option because uh, it would be a call option with an ISO, right? Um, but anyway, so you have 500,000 options. You need to exercise those. That could easily cost you, say, $100,000. And then you'll get the profit after that. If you've done options trading with like a stock broker, they probably give you a certain amount of margin where that's automatically done for you. So might not even get used to that if you've done options trading in like Robinhood or via a broker. Um, but that's something that happens to me on this. So you are having to exercise somehow. If you yourself don't have uh, the money to exercise that, there are a few options. There's a few different ways you can go about uh, doing that. Most likely you're going to need to get margin. You're going to need to get basically with the loan in order to do that. Uh, so Mike, do you have any info on that? Um, yeah, so there are, I mean, typically, um, in a best case scenario, you'll, you'll spend your own money and, um, you'll have that money and, you know, you'll be able to, to purchase the options that you want that you feel are going to be, um, the most beneficial to you. Once again, I definitely recommend talking to a lawyer or accountant because capital gains tax comes involved. Like it's a, it's a mess. 
Um, there are some really inventive solutions out there, though, where you can actually go to a group of investors. Um, and this doesn't require the permission of your company. It's a, a private contract between you and this group of investors. And they will finance the purchase of your options. And so they will give you a check um, for the options they are interested in. Um, typically, they will also give you a check to cover your capital gains tax. And um, in return, you have a private contract with them that in the event of a liquidity event, so that means the company goes public or they're purchased by you know, someone else, um, in exchange for this loan of money, um, you will give them a certain percentage of the shares that are, are purchased. Um, it really comes down to your own situation. Um, some of the benefits are it, it allows you to decrease your risk. Most of these companies, um, you, it, it's a, a 0% interest loan and you owe, only owe them anything if a liquidity event occurs. So if a liquidity event does not occur, you never have to pay them back. Um, and it's just a way for them to, to get in on companies that haven't yet hit private markets and, and such. Um, that, that, that's one avenue that, to be honest, I, I used and I'm, I'm pretty happy with. Uh, okay. So, oh, you got some, Chris? Yeah. Um, I, I think mine's so different, a little differently. Um, uh, as a founding developer, um, we got our, our opt, we don't, we didn't have to pay for our options. They just, um, became part of us at the vesting period. I think that was because of how early I got in. Um, but something we have to consider up here, and I mean, by up here, I mean Canada, um, is capital gains tax. Um, I, I'm fuzzy on the details, but if I recall correctly, the value of the stock, uh, at the point of vesting, if they, if we gain ownership of them, that becomes, cons that is considered, uh, income by our government. And then that will increase, raise our tax, where we are in our tax bracket considerably. Uh, I was just wondering if that's something you guys have to be considered about. This might be a good time to talk about the difference between ISOs, RSUs, equity. Yeah, I think so. Because so, I think we're, we're blurring some lines a little bit. Whoops. <laughs> I think you just volunteered, Michael. Okay. Well, I guess I, I volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, an ISO, as I've, I've kind of hammered on, I guess, constantly, is you don't own anything. All you own is the right to own something. Um, you, you have the ability to purchase a unit of stock in a company, uh, which means you're going to spend your money. Um, this typically happens at a lot of, um, uh, you know, pretty well-established startups. Um, they're pretty solid, um, but they haven't gone public yet. Um, an RSU is more along the type of unit that you will see at, um, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks. Um, they're trying to attract top talent. They're public. Um, and it's a restricted stock unit. And instead of you receiving the right to purchase stock, you actually receive stock. They will just give you shares. Um, so you don't have to spend your money. Of course, um, tax laws and stuff. Whichever, whichever company come into play here. Um, equity is kind of a, a, a different beast. And you, uh, 
I mean, one, one question: Our issues almost always have a vesting period, though, right? You don't actually. Yeah, yeah. All all of these have a vesting period. Um, Google doesn't want you to show up on day one and then quit on day two, and like all of a sudden you own 0.05 percent of Google. Like that's not a a good situation for them. So they will, you'll be offered, you know, X number of RSUs. There's a vesting schedule. There's a cliff. All of these sorts of things. Um, and then equity is, is kind of a different beast. To be honest, I personally, um, I, I would imagine, um, I would imagine that Daniel probably has more experience in equity than me. I find equity is kind of in the earlier stage startup that they haven't actually, you know, established a, a stock option plan. They're just kind of trying to figure it out and get. It's usually amongst founders, to be honest. Yeah, we because the main founder has done all of this before and he spent a, a little bit of time, we actually we're a little bit more closer on the uh, uh, what I have is a little bit more close. Like it's an actual number of shares. There's actual stock plan. Uh, mine are just pre-purchased at an extraordinarily uh, low amount because it was before the company was worth anything. And I've got my 83 Bs filed for that. So, but yeah, equity is not. Yeah. It's actually, I don't have a lot of it all time. Straight up equity. Um, I mean, in general, it's always been easiest because, you know, if you're doing like a 50 50 thing with another co founder, you're basically just saying we both share half the risk, half the reward. But you can definitely get into more complicated arrangements. And at that point, it's not really like, it's not really a thing, right? It's really a contract. And, and so it's not like you can just go exercise 10% of equity. You can't go sell 10% of equity. Kind of can, but you can't directly do it. A lot of it's going to come down to lawyers and contract negotiations and that. Um, so it's definitely a lot murkier, but it, you know, you get into a, a good start early, it can be worth a lot more money. All right. Uh, so you mentioned, well, both Chris and Daniel, you mentioned taxes. Do we want to get into taxes? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. So let's get into that. So we do have capital gains taxes here, Chris. Um, so, you know, if you exercise within a year, you uh, you pay more money than if you exercise after a year, um, and that's for stocks and I guess options, etc. Um, and so I believe the way it would work here, I mean, so you would pay the strike price, and then whether you make above that strike price when you go to sell the option or exercise the option would be what you'd be taxed on. I don't know in your case, Chris, how that would work if you didn't actually pay the strike price originally. I mean, was it just a zero strike? Um, it, I, I don't know the the exact terminology. Uh, obviously, I'm not as experienced in this. Um, but if I recall correctly, what the our lawyer said was that when we choose to vest them, uh, the strike price would be zero, and I would have to pay a capital gains tax on the value of the shares. At the value, um, at the vesting period, um, not at the point they're worth uh, when I strike, and I believe that's how uh, the Canadian laws behind it, okay. which uh, actually helps out more than um, more than what it could be. And I'm just googled now. Uh, apparently, capital gains tax in Canada is fifty percent. What really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Healthcare. Um, Healthcare's not cheap. <laughs> Here in America, I worked very hard to file paperwork to make sure I only pay capital gains tax because that's a hell of a lot better than income tax. 
because we have our priorities straight. It's what fifteen percent here, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I see a cat. Sorry, I got distracted by the cat. It was very cute. <laughs> I got those. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It depends on how. Uh, oh, uh, it depends on. I was even talking about your cat. It's little Daniel's cat. <laughs> I didn't know you had one too. Plenty of cats. I know that uh, I'm not. I am not an expert. I've only, like I said, for the most part, a lot of the shit has been completely theoretical for me. But typically, like if you are given a stock and it's valued at something and it's just handed to you, whatever the value is, that's income. And then where it grows from when it was given to you, from when you get rid of it, that is your capital gains. That's always been my how I've kind of uh, my rule of thumb and how I've kind of looked at everything. Yeah, you're right. Just you saying that jogged my memory. Um, it's counted up in Canada. Anyway, it's counted as income tax when you inherit it uh, at the valuation, I think yeah. of vesting period. But when you go to sell it, that's when the capital gains tax kicks in. Yeah. So, so the, the big thing that deems people exercising options is AMT here in the United States, which is the alternative minimum tax. Um, and basically what happens is, um, the, the year at, you know, the, the year that you exercise your options, um, let's imagine that, you know, I joined the startup seven years ago and I could buy 10,000 options at 50 cents. Um, after seven years, I leave the company. I decide to exercise those options and those options are now valued at $10 per share. Um, when I file my taxes afterwards, the IRS is going to look at it as if I've gained $950 or nine, $9.50 times the number of shares. I have to pay the tax on that. I've now acquired an asset that's much more valuable than I, I was given. Um, and so AMT is like the really big tax that here in the US you have to look out for when you're exercising options because you're basically you're buying an asset for you know fifty cents that you that is now worth ten dollars. Um, it can really it can really bite you. Talk to an accountant. Don't try to do it yourself. That's that's probably the number one piece of advice is if you're really thinking about doing anything with options, talk to an accountant. Possibly even talk to a lawyer. Like I recently found this year, I found out about the uh, existence of an 83B election, which is basically me telling the IRS, you know what, I'm going to just pay income taxes on the, you know, 10th of a penny that my stocks are worth that I bought now. I'm just going to go ahead and pay income tax now so that all I do is pay uh, capital gains on it later. There's like this really weird situation where you've got to file it within 30 days of exercising and getting it, you got to get an accountant like pay the money get an accountant get them to tell you exactly what to do yeah and I, i'd say to you like if you get some really complicated options package it's worth whatever the consultation fee would be probably only a couple hours of their time to at least get a second opinion on it you don't want to wing it and make a decision that affects the next five years of your life and you know your possible future uh because you didn't quite understand the terms to put it more simply if you think about it as an engineer, somebody is paying to utilize your five, 10, however many years of experience to build a website. You wouldn't expect, you know, uh, 
the CEO at the company you're contracting for to be able to build their own website at least very well. So why would you expect yourself to understand taxes very well compared to somebody who's been doing it for five, 10, however many years? Yeah. And I know as an engineer myself, right? Like we feel like, oh, I can figure that out. Like I can go read a couple blog posts and, you know, pour through some papers and I'll, I'll get it. That's probably not the smartest plan. Right. Well, that's how you get screwed by AMT. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Uh, is there anything else tax related you want to cover? Startup taxes in general, maybe even as a founder or a manager? I think most of my advice comes down to talk to somebody, like somebody you pay um, that will give you good advice because that stuff is intentionally complicated and you can really screw yourself over. Um, I know people that have had to like sell their houses. They've had collection agencies come after them for stuff because they had to basically pay off taxes or try to exercise options that they couldn't afford. And yeah, you can really screw yourself over. Mm -hmm. The only thing beyond that I can think of is, is just your generic 1099. Like you're, especially like at the point I am in our, my startup, we, we don't have, we haven't done payroll yet. So it's just generic learning how to operate as an independent contractor. Those kind of like you're paying your own taxes. That's, so you're doing the uh, quarterly payments and all that? What? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing the quarterly payments. Normally, I just skip the quarterly payments because I only do nights and weekends work, and fuck it, the, the penalty is not that much. This year, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm doing the quarterly payments. Yeah, so, that's what I've always done with my side work. So just, you know, what I have, yeah, this year has been not only that, but like literally, I'm logging everything, and everything is a business expense. <laughs> everything is a business expense. Oh. How does the um, you work from home? Right? Are you taking that deduction, or are you not doing that because you're in an office? So I'm working out of my bedroom. It's not a completely isolated area, which technically I cannot deduct from my taxes. Um, I could claim the square footage underneath the desk in my chair, possibly if I put up some partitions. Um, Really, what I would be doing is I would be playing a uh, gambling game uh, over how much they want to dig into it and how much I'd actually be saving. Uh, with New York rents, it might actually I might actually be saving a little bit. Uh, but yeah, because I don't have a dedicated room, I would be I would actually surprisingly enough be much better off financially if I was paying for a two bedroom in New York City because uh, then I could deduct the entire second bedroom. Uh, but because I'm not paying for a two bedroom in this city. Uh, I'm a little bit in an awkward hole and this conversation is being recorded. So <laughs> yeah. I uh, I have taken the deduction and I have also not taken it. Right. So yep. I, right when I've had a dedicated office, I would take it. Um, then point to point when I had um, like a, a dining area and I always yep. wanted like I that's all it was used for. I took that uh, but when it's more murky, I tend not to. Um, also, the, what I've read, you're like exponentially more likely to get out of it if you claim that, because I guess a lot of people try to abuse it. Um, so it didn't sound one of those things that was quite worth the risk of, you know, stretching. Yeah. yeah. Back when I back when I lived in Dallas, I had two bedrooms, and yeah, I would deduct the entire second bedroom, and that worked out well. But uh, considering my rent is nearly double what I paid in Dallas. For just a one bedroom, <laughs> not an option. 
up here, uh, if I if I recall correctly, my accountant said if I deducted my home office uh, on my taxes, I would that whenever I sold my house, I would have to list it as commercial real estate, which is really a shitty law. Um, so I was that able to. Yeah. <laughs> Ow. Thanks, eh, bud. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I get to. to uh, yeah, it's a really strange law. I think it's. I think the law was originally meant to be more like if you're selling out of your house, or like some people turn the house into a barber shop. I think it's yeah. like if you turned a house into a place of business, which is common in smaller cities, mm-hmm. uh, like actually turning an old house into a business. I think that's what the law was intended for, but. As far as I know, that hasn't changed. So I can't deduct a room in my office without having to list my house as commercial real estate. And then that comes with a whole bunch of other problems. Yep. All right. Uh, I think we're done with taxes. Uh, so speaking of work from home, well, let's talk a little bit about like uh, remote working, co-working spaces versus um, co-located working, especially, you know, of course, how that affects startups. Um, I have some thoughts on that as well. Uh, so whoever wants to first go, I'll actually go first. Cause that was a recent change on our part. We just actually, as of like a day or two ago, signed the lease on a private four person office at a WeWork. Uh, that is a big change. That is a big change. We've been, um, so I'd say fully remote, but technically we have like a desk or two at a co-working space out in Larkspur, California which is technically where our address is at. Where is that? Um, it's where the ferry terminal is in Marin County, which is just the county north of San Francisco. So Larkspur is where the ferry terminal is. Um, it's actually the co-working space is, I think, technically in the ferry terminal. Um, we, yeah, so like we've got, we've done, we've all been remote. We've all been moving into, we're now moving into a co-working spot. The, the remote versus co-working versus all of that is an interesting play. Um, I've seen it like one of uh, our main founder, one of his big things was that his previous company, Grovo, one of his feelings was, is like, oh, we, 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 we got offices way too soon. And that's always something to consider, especially as a startup, as you're having to uh, make those decisions is uh, a lot of what you're doing in a startup is going, well, how can I just not spend money? One of the easiest ways to not spend money is you just don't pay yourself a lot of money. Uh, one of the other ways is, is like office space will just burn through all of your money uh, 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 as quickly as you possibly think you can. Like WeWork has been both a blessing and a curse in that you can now get office space that you're not locked into for, you know, five, 10 year contracts, but you're still paying for it. It's still expensive. That said, at a certain point, there's a human factor that goes into remote versus co-working. And while remote works well, what I find is remote works well when there's defined tasks and it's really easy to break off exactly what you're doing. And there's a lot up in the air. Uh, remote tends to struggle a little bit without a very high, intense focus on communication. And then secondly, remote becomes difficult when people at the company are just going through life events. Uh, oddly enough, the biggest evidence for us getting an office is one of us, uh, one of the other Dans at the company um, uh, will be having a child in the next week and he's going to need to get out of the house. <laughs> 
So we've got we got a, a, a we got a you know four desks in a mini private office that uh, we work that basically as close to his apartment as we possibly could uh, as a way for us to kind of just get out of the house, shake it up, and kind of see each other more. But it's it's kind of always an interesting thing. Like I'm personally. Um, I'm kind of excited to have the uh, co-working space because uh, my girlfriend started working from home more, which means my large one bedroom is now a tiny one bedroom when two people are working from home in it. Um, and so I'm kind of excited to get out of the office and see people more. But at the same time, I want to make sure we maintain like our strong focus on remote oriented culture. So that opens us up it's, at a certain point. We're going to have money. and We're going to start hiring people. And life is a lot better when. I can hire somebody, say, down in Georgia or something like that, and uh, I don't have to relocate them to New York. Like, that's a lot easier to find somebody like, hey, you got your family family down in Oklahoma or something. Great. You can stay in Oklahoma. I'll pay you New York salary. You can stay in Oklahoma with your family and get myself access to a lot wider range of talent. Did you just make a not-so-subtle hint at Ben? Um. I wouldn't call it not so subtle so much as uh, a solid right hook to the jaw. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I've been remote for several years, like five or seven, maybe. Um, so I'm definitely a, a fan of remote work, and I'm a proponent of it. I, but I'm not like a zealot of it, right? It doesn't work for every company. Uh, it doesn't work for every culture, particularly. Um, but I do think it's definitely a competitive advantage for smaller companies and for startups. So matter what Dan's talking about. Um, the one thing I really try to push for for places that I'm at um, and that I've went out of the way to pick for myself is co-working. Um, I do not currently have co-work, but I almost always do. Um, whether that's paid for through the company I'm with or not. Um, and I don't go every day. I might only go two days a month. I might go two days a week. It really just depends. Um, but just having the ability to go and knowing you have the ability to go can change a lot, right? So maybe maybe you're stuck on a problem and you just need like a change of space, a change of scenery. Maybe you're feeling pretty isolated, you need to get out and talk to people, um, things like that. So it gives you that. And then if you go for a live event, uh, like what Dan talked about, it gives you a way to get out uh, from that situation and have somewhere that's just for work and just for focus. Another thing it does that's good is working remote, it's really easy to just like always work because you never really leave. Um, so if you get into a habit of going somewhere to work, eventually you leave and it feels like, oh, it'll be there tomorrow. Um, instead of it feeling like, oh, my life is right here, I'll grab it and work. You know? Yeah, I work yeah. a lot. I have a lot of work stuff on my personal laptop, like just email and Slack and whatever, but I find that it's really easy to just always be on. Um, so, I don't do the, the co-working space thing for now just because I'm, I'm never home. I travel a lot, um, but I think something like that would help. Definitely having the dedicated space to do work at home has been helpful because I don't want to take my laptop into my room or whatever and then get pinged on Slack and then be like sitting in bed responding to questions or something. So I feel pretty strongly about the, the separate workspace for sure. I, I think a huge thing about remote or not is alignment. And that's, like Ben said, if the company knows how to support it, and if you do, um, like I've worked remote now for four years, five years, and it was a tough adjustment at first, but I I loved it. Um, and when I worked for Ben, like the company knew how to handle remote workers, and 
it was a pleasure and I needed the co-workspace sometimes, but, um, working well, we worked really well. Uh, and the following company, the, they kind of allowed it, but they didn't support it. It wasn't a, a really a desire. So there were struggles and management struggles with it. Um, that just, again, again, just different, uh, perspectives, different alignments. Uh, for me personally, I love the freedom that came with it and it gave time back to me, uh, cause I didn't have to spend time commuting or doing other things. And I sometimes would fall into the trap of working all, uh, being on hook a lot. Uh, but the freedoms that came with it were just amazing. And the drawbacks too, um, it was phenomenal when working with like a small tight knit senior team, um, now I'm, I'm working in an office now though, and I see the benefits of it though, but I'm, you know, mentoring a number of juniors. I don't see that being possible with remote work, uh, especially with, with like younger, more inexperienced people. It, it's harder. You have to have succinct communication with remote. And I think that's something that comes with time uh, and experience. I tend to agree. Like, you can definitely do it. It's doable. Uh, it's not as efficient. A lot of the communication is not as efficient remotely. Um, so the way I usually describe it is you lose something to communication that you gain in focus. Yep. The, the focus you get from that work is tons more than you can ever get. Oh, yeah. The thing yeah. I've used to talk to people, especially you talk about the uh, junior engineers and whatnot, uh, you get a lot of focus and a lot of freedom and a lot of happiness at a remote work, but it requires and demands a level of discipline that by definition is not yet there in a junior engineer. It, life is better if you find a junior engineer who's doing a career shift later in life, so they at least have work and life experience. But you're entirely correct. Like remote becomes extraordinarily uh, risky um, and difficult with a junior engineer fresh out of college that while they may be excited, they don't quite have the discipline yet. And it's so much easier to instill discipline and mentoring in person than it is uh, remote. Yeah, so we've taken a, a pretty unique approach to this, I think. Um, and granted, we're a brand new company. You know, we, we leased our first office ever. Um, we're right now at the point of growing and leasing our second office, um, or our, our next bigger office, not our second office. But um, um, what we've done is we have two days of the week that are, you know, you're kind of expected to be in the office. So Monday and Thursday, you're expected to be in the office. And these are days like we're, we're focused on that in-person communication, building the team. We kind of came from, you know, all corners of the country to Chicago to build this like very regionally focused company right now. Um, and so like Monday and Thursdays are the days everyone's in the office and like we're we're doing our thing as a team. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, those are days that like focus. Like, let's just get work done. If you want to stay home, you, you're expected to stay home um, and, and get things done. Of course, we have a very like liberal work from home policy around that. Like if you have kid things going on or if you're sick or whatnot, like please don't come in the office on those office days. But um, and it's worked out really, really well for us. We've also started recently hiring um, some remote employees that, you know, if they have remote experience, um, you know, we'll hire you. And we're kind of we're, we're right on the cusp of expanding beyond our little Chicagoland area right now. 
And we know that that's going to, you know, require some experience in, in managing and like working with a remote team. And so we're using, you know, our opportunity now to, to let's start bringing in some remote employees to get really used to, you know, how does our organization work with remote people and let's, let's get that down. But I really like the, the two day in, three day out thing has been working really well for us. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, you, you lose a lot of the hiring benefits from that, right? Because you still have to relocate people, but that does seem like it'd be a really great mix of like work, uh, life balance and calm focus balance. We've definitely had to pay some, uh, you know, relocation expenses because of it. Uh, all right. Anything else on? Uh, um, I think yeah, just just to kind of like redig into some of the points, like uh, yeah, just no matter what. And I found this in companies that were all centrally located in an office versus companies that were all entirely remote. Uh, communication is so key. Um, and it's easier to forget that you're communicating when you're doing it in person. Uh, that just ends up being, uh, we, we, uh, you know, at, at Alto, we had a meeting with all of us, um, in one place, you know, just, uh, two of the, two of the people flew out and we all kind of hung out and we talked about what's going well so far, what's not going well so far. And even despite our high intensity, our, high focus and our high throughput and communication still rose up as a, a uh, spot of, you know, frustration of things that we're all struggling with. And it really doesn't matter which way you're going through. And it's one of those, uh, whether you're going through uh, remote or in office, it's just, it's such a key critical thing. And sometimes it's easy to forget that people don't live inside your head and don't hear your thoughts. They don't know what you're thinking. And it's super easy to forget remote, uh, but it's also disturbingly easy to forget in person. And at a startup, like it's, it's, it's what will destroy you. It's what will dismantle your company from the inside out. It's just kind of like, you know, larger enterprises that have got secure funding and, you know, profitability and all of that. They don't have to worry about it because they've got a lot of buffer room. But at a startup, you don't have a lot of buffer room and these kind of things will kind of tear you down from the inside always something terrifying to think about so all right uh so let's jump into the next topic uh so travel events conferences etc uh so i, I want to cover this from a couple angles um this is travel how do you manage that um and then events so both events you're doing for work and for not work um and how that fits in so like you know mandate does a ton of events for work I do events that aren't necessarily for work, but they're kind of, uh, you know, dot one related to work um, and events, conferences, whatever. What are your thoughts? So events, um, I've got thoughts on that. Um, so I'm more along the side of like, I don't, the stuff that I do, uh, my job doesn't necessarily require events. Uh, However, I've been organizing conferences for the last seven, eight years, uh, set aside from the company coffers, as it were, uh, to pay for uh, small sponsorships uh, within the community. So I can still participate in the community, which is completely unrelated to the business, completely unrelated to hiring because we're not hiring. 
Um, I really enjoyed giving a, I, I sponsored my own meetup and I really enjoyed giving the pitch. Uh, uh, today's meetup was sponsored by Alto. Alto, we're not hiring. Um, that's always a lot of fun. Um, I find a lot of value, at least in making sure that I step away from the business of getting the startup off the ground and going to the events like to JS Comp US or any of these kind of events, just getting out and getting to talk to people. I find myself at least always having questions to ask somebody else like, oh shit, you're working on that. I really want to talk to you about that event wise. And as far as like travel, travel for just for business, you know, the occasional trip out to California, quite a few trips from the California guys out here because there's two of them in California and three of them in New York. It's cheaper for them to come out here. Um, yeah, ad hoc. But yeah, uh, the events is something that like was, it, but that was more of a, on a me side, like very critical for me that like, listen, like these events are important to me and, as much as I spend time on the startup, I have to be able to participate in these events. And luckily I found a group of people that I'm helping put this company together with that are all aligned on my passion and have been willing to set aside money so that I can do that. So, Yeah, I think for, for me, being remote, that's actually a large percentage of how I um, keep from being too isolated, right? Um, it really gives me an outlet to... Know, go to tech conferences and turn out or learn something new. It's really easy to um, kind of stagnate not on any team, but especially if you're not having those like casual conversations as often about just random things, right? So it's really good to get out and hear about new things and different things people are trying, how they solve these problems. And then it's just good to have social interaction. You don't want to be like that mobile comic that you had to communicate with which is in working from home for too long. Yeah, I think it also depends on what your goals are as well. So um, in the early stages, and, and also depending on where you live, it can be important to get your, your startup's name out there in front of investors and people and potential beta users and, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of how San Francisco works in a lot of ways. Um, but it can also be very expensive, but that's kind of how they do things there um, in a lot of ways. But then it's also... It, Great for developers, like you said, you have conversations about new and exciting things. And then particularly as a remote worker, I, I miss those beer chats sometimes, you know, going out with coworkers and someone will bring up like, hey, I was working with this crazy thing over the weekend. Um, and then someone else will chime in and be like, oh, yeah, I played with that last month. And then like, you don't really get to have those working remotely anymore. Um, yeah, and you, you can try, but it, it's kind of forced. It's not really it's not the, the same kind of casualness to it. Yeah, you have to like make an effort to do it, and I think that takes away from the experience of it all. Uh, I think a, a big thing about doing uh, having your people go to the events is, and like obviously aside from learning things because that's what you want to do, it's uh, it's a break in routine and thinking. Um, I, I hear so many places talk about oh, you know, you want to get everyone aligned and get buy in, and I feel like without being entirely aware, you can get everyone to have a confirmation bias on this is the way we do things. This is the way we do things. You go to a conference and you talk to other people who are doing things differently at their company and you can get an entirely fresh perspective and different way of looking at maybe a problem you're having or a different way to, to go about things. Like it just, it can be a huge eye opener and that can be really good for, you know, individual careers and it can be really good for the business as well the the company to kind of take a different approach like aside from just recruiting and all those things yeah and i would say like 90 percent of the time i've been at conferences i wasn't recruiting 
Um, but just the fact that I knew some people from them or people knew me from them, it's made those times that I was recruiting so much easier. So just for straight business value, it's worth going to so many more conferences, even when you aren't hiring, just because those people you meet this year in three years, maybe you're both in a position where you have a position and they're looking for a role and then it seals up and, uh, you know, it can just be a really great way to grow that network. Well, even recently for us, we um, had the time and the hole in the budget uh, to bring on. We only had time for maybe like two, three days a week uh, for somebody. And through people that I met through the community and the conferences and meetups that I go to, I was able to DM somebody and just be like, hey, you just got a new job three months ago. So you're definitely off the market. Do you have a clone? Uh, and I literally said, do you have a clone? And she was able to spawn, yeah, and we were able to, like, you know, get a contact and get somebody super quick that uh, seems great. Well, um, it seems like she'll work out over the next month or so. But, like, yeah, those connections, I haven't been doing this with the explicit uh, uh, need to be recruiting. And I haven't actually been recruiting at all in any of these events. But definitely continuing to maintain those connections means I was able to. Uh, off the cuff, email a friend and just be like, is there somebody exactly like you out in the world? Yeah, and like not exactly regular recruiting, but similar because I've had a lot of occasions where I'll meet someone who's doing something that's not really related to anything I'm working on, but in two years, we had a project come up or had something that's like, oh, I have no specialty in this. I have no idea how this works, but wait, I remember this person that I know. Let me reach out to them. And you know, maybe you only hire them for a couple hours or whatever for their experience, but that can save you weeks. That's one been the big one for us is, you know, we we pulled together a team from across the entire country, as I mentioned, Florida, California, Canada, all converged on Chicago to build this startup in Chicago because we thought this was the best market for success. But none of us have any connections here in Chicago. And so we attend a lot of these events, not only from a recruiting perspective, but we just kind of want to get awareness out there that like, hey, Moonrise is a startup in Chicago. If you're ever looking for a job, maybe Google us. Um, partnership opportunities that we never would have like considered or even thought of have presented themselves where we can, we can integrate our, you know, our technology and some, some other products tool. Um, I, I can't. Um, express the value in like getting in there and networking. Uh, and, and I know our situation is unique because like we're introducing all new people to a new community. But um, for us, it's just been very, very valuable to go out there and beat the streets. Yeah, I think it can be hard for some people to get into that mindset too, because as a, a C level or a co founder, or whatever, you're looking at the numbers and you think, oh, it's going to cost me $3,000 to sponsor this thing. And it's really hard to measure the ROI of how that comes back to you. Um, you know, whether that's recruiting or awareness, you never know when you're going to go to some meetup and meet some customer who's like, they, they don't know about your product, but then they find out about it and suddenly you've sold 3000 seats to this thing or whatever. Um, stuff like that happens all the time, but you can't really tie it back to a specific thing. Um, and I think that was one of the hardest things. Well, it's one of the hardest things about my job, honestly, even though I'm not a C-level executive, is just getting that buy-in and saying, like, yeah, we're going to spend $5,000 to do this thing, but here's what we're hoping to actually get out of this. 
I, from from my perspective at like very early stage, a lot of times you can't, it, in our industry, everything wants to be quantified. Um, and I, I know at, at our stage, very early level, um, a lot of things just can't be quantified. And sometimes you just have to say like, we're going to this thing because we are. And this is what we hope to get out of it, but there's really not any numbers associated with it. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're on the smaller side and have the freedom to make those choices, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have definitely, like in my career, have definitely had to have conversations with investors about why we're spending the money we are on events and travel costs and things like that. Once those conversations start happening, it kind of starts to suck a little bit. Um, and that data can can be pretty tricky to, to actually gather and quantify. But you're absolutely right. Like everybody wants to see numbers and those are things that you're just, you're never going to get numbers for. Yeah, I don't think this this will be the first time I've told you I do not envy the position you're in and trying to quantify <laughs> your existence. Yeah, um, I've been in the position to have to justify my paychecks a few times now. <laughs> no, but I think the other, like the flip side of that, going back to the whole developers thing, like it's been valuable for us to send people, even people like on our payroll to these things, even though what they're doing is not related to the conference. Um, it's helpful for them to go and just learn the new things and network with people and almost get to, for us, it feels like we get to attend a conference to actually be an attendee. We're not necessarily there for work. We can attend the sessions. We can learn crazy things about Elasticsearch or whatever that we thought we would never need. Um, but the, it actually turns out that that's come up a few times where something someone has seen at a conference has actually been useful to something we're doing day to day. So I, um, I've always argued for, so from past jobs where I was just a manager at a company that was technically straight up, I've always kind of, the numbers are always difficult. You're entirely correct. I'm not even coming at this from like a, I, I want to go and represent the company. Like I just want to go and bring some people to these conferences and the arguments I've always, uh, I, uh, the, uh, argument I've always tried to make and explain is like, look, um, I guarantee you, I, let me take a developer, you know, let me take a couple developers with me to a conference. Yeah, you'll spend, you know, a grand or two per person, but they're going to come back refreshed, ready to go. And they're going to like, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to run off of this energy for months well after here. And there's a small possibility that whoever I take with me to this conference was probably a couple months away from quitting anyways. Like that's just usually you roll of the dice, how it works. Like just the energy you get from people. Um, out of that is always, always been invaluable, um, in my perspective. So, yeah, I think that definitely ties back a little bit about like the last thing about working from home, like having a cohort. Like, I think a change of scenery is always something that invigorates anyone. And I, I absolutely agree with, uh, like you thinking back to my own experience going to conferences, like how much more enthusiastic I was coming back from it. Yeah, I always like that feeling, but it does get harder and harder the more events you do because, uh, I mean, eventually you do get kind of burnt out on the events. Even if you're not doing them at the scale that I'm doing them, even once a month or once a quarter, it can get kind of old sometimes. Um, and I do find that difficult. So, all right. <laughs> I, I just can't think of this nice segue for the next We one. We were leaving the segue up to you, Ben. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Jerks. <laughs> this is a really this is a really meta segue, I gotta say. 
<laughs> you got this, Ben. I believe in you. Uh, so when you think about your employees that you're sending to these events, and let's think about employees. Uh, what are marketing manager taking? That you're, that you're focusing on and that you're hiring. Uh, Imagine you send a back-end engineer to a front-end conference. What right. does that turn them into? I don't know. Maybe a full-stack engineer. Yeah. Is that valuable? In the, in the startup world, are you, are you all focused on front-end or back-end or full-stack? or How teaching you? <laughs> This is this has been a hostile acquisition of the PHP Town Hall podcast. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I'm over this shit. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think the conferences are a great opportunity to get people to learn skills that are maybe outside their comfort zone. Um, I know companies that have sent people to training sessions like the workshop days, specifically so that they get hands-on experience with whatever the latest and greatest technology that they're trying to get into the company is. So I know uh, there's uh, there seem to be a few schools of thought on that, um, not just about sending people to events and whether or not that's valuable, the training sessions are valuable, but also whether or not people should be full stack or should specialize. And I'm sort of in the, the specialization camp, I think, but I don't necessarily think that that works if you're trying to launch a startup. I think you need to, to be able to wear a few hats and be able to not necessarily be amazing at all of the things that you're doing, but be good enough to at least work towards hiring somebody to actually do those things for you. I, I think you're entirely correct. And you touch on kind of like that uh, 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 catch 22 of in the early days of your startup, you need somebody either yourself or somebody else that can wear as many hats as possible uh, for the pure utilitarian reason. Uh, you need 10 people, but you can afford two. So if I can get two people to wear five hats each, uh, we will somehow make it through. Um, it also has become increasingly difficult um, and interesting in a world where different parts of the stack have continued to get more and more complex as technology and society has marched forward to the point to where I've actually started to come to the belief that uh, the days of the full stack web developer are effectively dead. Uh, I'm becoming increasingly convinced of this fact that even then finding a full stack engineer is almost impossible due to the sheer complexity of say front end versus back end. Like it used to be, yeah, I just spent a lot of time in back, back end and learn a little bit of CSS and HTML and JavaScript and I'll be fine. Uh, and then nowadays, the most common complaint I hear is like, why do we even need Webpack? I'm like, well, I need about an hour. Like, I need about one and a half days to explain to you why everything has gotten so complicated in JavaScript. Uh, and like half of that time is explaining to you everything that's happened since front end was just a little bit of CSS and JavaScript. I, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, my preference has always been, I always prefer people with a little touch of generalization to them, people who understand the world outside of their silos. I think too much specialization um, is really easy to find at really large organizations. And I find the most valuable engineers are the ones that can empathize and put themselves into, okay, I'm a front-end engineer, but what is a back-end engineer worried about? How is that going to affect what and when and how they deliver um, API endpoints to me, how can I make their job easier in the same way that I'm having to empathize with a customer? So I find those skills to be really valuable, but 
yeah, it's it's a tough one. Like after like maybe I don't know if I had to put a number on it after about your third or fourth engineer, you really have to start specializing. And I'd almost say your first special if you're smart, the first specialized engineer that you bring on is ops and infrastructure. Uh, bring in a specialized ops and infrastructure person as early as you can possibly afford um, and get all that crap fixed before it becomes a ticking time bomb and blows up in your face. You can get away with an ugly as hell uh, front end and you can get away with a janky slow back end. But at a certain point, your infrastructure is going to keel over and take your entire business up with you. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I think another powerful combination is any sort of engineering background with any sort of product management background. I think uh, that is super powerful to be able to say, okay, this feature, like this would be the fun thing to work on as an engineer, but this would be the good thing to work on as like a product manager, somebody trying to make money. Here's how much revenue we could potentially make from something like this. And I feel like that background thinks about the, the business needs a little bit more than traditional engineering necessarily would. Mm-hmm. I I just wanted to jump in here real quick because I'm doing all of these things right now. And so I have lots of opinions about them. But Daniel, I, I generally agree with you. And it's been interesting to watch over the past 20 years. Um, you know, seven to 10 years ago, a full stack person was a specialist. And that was like, holy crap, I've got this amazing person. And I've over the past 10 to you know five years, I've started to transition and at the point in our hiring right now, um, the full stack engineer at our company is the generalist. And uh, when I'm looking for a specialist, it's either um, a front end person, or it's a DevOps, you know, person, or it's like a, a, a data driven, you know, like data engineering, that that type of person and full stack engineer has really become this kind of generalist of like, you know, yes, you can, you'll do the back end things and you can dabble in the front end enough. It, you get some direction from the front end specialists and you can, you can accomplish what you need to do. Um, I, I, I completely agree with you in terms of, um, I, I find like the DevOps and the, the platform person, um, that needs to be a, a pretty early hire. I, I felt like I was kind of unique in that perspective, given that um, the the leadership team um, that we've developed was pretty old school. Um, and like we, when we approached that hire, we were like, we just need an AWS person because I know I need DNS, but that means Route 53 now. And I don't know what the fuck that means. Um, so... Um, we, we approach that from a, a little bit of a, a specialized scenario, but, um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree that, um, the, the big thing I look for is curiosity in a, in a, in a startup scenario. Um, I, everyone has a, you know, you have to wear many hats. I'm looking for people that are, um, they, they're excited about learning new technologies. Um, they, I, I think the, the biggest problem in this world is when everyone's wearing all the hats at an early stage startup, you really need to start thinking about where, what are their career progression plans and what are they going to end up being in either your organization or someone else's organization three to five years down the road. Um, if everyone's wearing all the hats, 
um, then they can really get into a rut. And I, I hate when people just get stuck. And so early on, I start thinking about like, all right, what is, what is our collective vision for your career? And let's help you get there. And let's help you get there in a way that aligns with the, the company's overall goals and their vision. I, um, I find it interesting you bring up the career progression thing. It's actually a conversation we've all been having um, individually and privately um, in Alto's career progression, which is like, hey, we're all pretty far along in our careers. And at a certain point, either Alto is going to go belly up and we're going to go off somewhere else. and That's fine. Who cares? Um, or it's going to be a success. What is the landing point going to look like? Because somebody's going to be somebody who's already far along in the career is going to be angry if they don't end up where they think they're supposed to be. And somebody who's earlier in their career could end up in a really bad place if they don't think ahead to these kind of things. Uh, and that's a surprisingly difficult conversation of, yeah, I'm hiring you for this right now and you're going to be fine with it for six months. And then you're going to be wondering where your career progression is and there's nowhere to go because there's literally nobody here and there's no company um so like what do you want and let's figure out how we can give it to you because that's also how we as the startup are going to know when you've kind of reached that point where like oh crap like this person's a flight risk because they need something we can't give to them they need opportunities we can't give to them so we need to start looking for their replacement and make sure they have a soft lending when they leave so yeah, I'm actually okay with that to some extent because the, the people who like to get in the trenches and get their hands dirty in those early stages are actually not necessarily the people that can take you all the way to an IPO or whatever your goal is. And actually, oftentimes, uh, I, I find that people who are really, really good at the engineering side of things or wearing all the hats and doing all of that stuff, not always so great at the management and leadership side of things. Um, and I, I see that a lot. It is tricky and it sucks if you have to basically say like, thank you for helping us build this multi-million dollar thing, but goodbye. Uh, but that is kind of the reality of the situation is that if that's not the person that's going to get you where you need to go, then yeah, maybe there isn't a career opportunity for them there. And I think that's an okay conversation to have. But I think you just need to be transparent about it because it would suck to, to get to a certain level and then be like, okay, bye. And then not have any idea why why there wasn't a conversation about that in the first place. Yeah, this is one of the things that probably maybe a different podcast, but um, I, I'm a big fan of like kind of having these conversations and these discussions early on. Um, I don't think that managing out is a bad thing. Um, I just think you need to identify it early um, and you can you can develop a very great startup team that will exist in 18, you know, within the first 18 to 24 months and with the kind of collective understanding that like none of us are going to be here after 24 months. And that's kind of known. Um, it just has to be managed correctly. And I'm not saying that's the way it is. I'm just saying it might be that way. I, to answer the original question, I'd go slightly off the board. Maybe I would think from given my experience is I would hire two people who are amazing system architects. People, developers can like understand the business requirements, uh, assess what needs to be done for technology wise to grow and put in uh, an architecture and infrastructure. And from there, hire journalists or specialists, given whatever the requirements are. And I don't think that's, you know, just say, oh, would you go with generalists or specialists, whatever the needs are based on what 
those two system architects. Is Ben laughing at me? No, I'm not. I'm laughing at Mike Wells. Wow. Uh, what a dick, Ben. Welcome to the PHP Town Hall. <laughs> so now that we're off topic again. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I tend to go kind of closer to what you're saying, Chris. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is just, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've done that everywhere, but I've definitely done that here. It's kind of because of the size of the company, right? So we are a small company, but we definitely have people that tend to specialize. Well, I don't want to say specialize. They, they have an obvious bias towards one thing, but they're all full stack engineers. I found that works pretty well for us because you, you never, as a small company, you often do need people to just jump in and start helping with something else because something else might need more attention. And so it's really handy for us to have those full stack people that can do, you know, like a real system architecture end to end. Um, and you get that kind of cohesive thing where anyone can jump into any project for the most part. Um, what you don't get there is you don't get like the amazing, amazing efficiencies you get with the specialist. But you do get a little bit of both in that people will tend to have biases. And if you can give them projects within those biases, uh, it helps out. I would say my, my bias towards full stack engineers early on um, is the minimum viable product aspect. Mm -hmm. Just like get something out the door. It doesn't even have to work. It doesn't have to be pretty. Just get it out the door. And let's see what happens. Let's learn from it. And then as we progress through phases, um, we can figure out what we need. Because I don't know what we need until yeah. we've done something. I, 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 agree with, uh, I agree with you, Michael. It's, it's so important to validate your ideas first before you build and cement an architecture around it. Um, I've seen what happens when a startup thinks that they have product market fit accelerates, um, and lays the foundation and drops in a massive architecture into place and then finds out actually people don't want to spend any money on this. Um, and we're up a creek. I think, um, the only risk is, is like, yeah, the, the other extreme end of the spectrum is, is if you're constantly pushing out MVPs. And you're not really being deliberate about it. You do run some massive risks there, which is where somebody who has more experience, like a system architect, really starts to have value uh, to come in and provide some of those experiences. I, I find the perfect blend from my perspective is, is if at least you go into it from a purely IC perspective. If I'm coming into it with a write code to be deleted kind of mindset, like I'm going to write this, it's going to be really easy to remove it. When I'm done with it, um, it means it's easy to replace with a permanent system. I can get it done. I can test it. Customers like it. So then it's worth it to spend a month or three on making it permanent. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to keep droning on about this, but I, and I may have mentioned this in the last thing, the, the last, you know, part of this, but I feel like there's a series of, there's a period of a company, um, where you're a prototype and all of a sudden you have to become a product. Um, and the way I describe this is, you know, the plane is flying in the air and now we have to rebuild it and we can't land the plane. Like we're generating revenue. The plane's got to stay in the air. So you got to, you got to gather the right people. You got to, to rebuild the plane while it's flying. And so it's from prototype to product. 
um, is a super difficult time. And that's the, if you can identify the right time to do that and the right people to make that happen, um, then you're in a really good place, but it's very hard to do. Pregnant pause. All right. Uh, so let's, let's try to wrap this up. Let's go. Let's do each person here a day in the life of the startup. So we'll start with Amanda. Uh, give us a day in your life. So my, at my current job, uh, I find that it's actually pretty similar to early stage. I, I'm doing more management now. And I would say that that's my specialty. I'm very focused on the management side of things, not necessarily wearing as many hats as I possibly can. Um, but day to day I'm doing, uh, I do a lot of events. So sometimes it's preparation for that. Sometimes it's just wine management things. Um, people need expenses done or there's some HR thing going on or whatever. So dealing with that, um, sometimes it's just meetings about various things. Sometimes it's product updates. Sometimes it's API reviews and things like that. Um, so I find that it is actually pretty similar to some of the, the early days of startups because I do have to do a lot of things. I don't think that necessarily changed for me, but I think a lot of it is to do with the job that I do as well. I'm not doing straight engineering. I'm doing DevRel. So it's engineering, but also marketing, but also technical writing, but also going out there and giving talks to people. And there's a lot going on with the job as it is. All right, uh, uh, Chris Bowden, you're next. Day in your life. Uh, early on, day in life is wake up, get some coffee right away, and get to it. Like morning is my focus time. Just uh, start hammering out what needs to be done, whether it's code reviews or often developing. Uh, sometimes assessing business requirements and making sure that what we're working on is in line with the with the latest requirements. Uh, and that's like eat, breathe and sleep the work. Uh, now we're a little more established and my role and everything's a little different, a little more normal, I'd say, you know, get up, get ready for work, then have the coffee, head into the work. Um, and then it's a lot more working with people as a little bit of engineering, more documentation, and then kind of, defining process to make sure the company can do things efficiently as we grow. And yeah, that's where I am right now. Nice. Uh, Chris? Yeah. So uh, day in the life at this point, um, it depends on the day. Uh, my day can be anything from uh, roll out of bed, scream into the void for about five minutes, make a cup of coffee, feel better, sit down, uh, and then code for about nine or 10 hours. Uh, some days are a lot of discussions with uh, some of my coworkers that are uh, uh, more on the product side, uh, product marketing, business, biz dev side, um, uh, having conversations with them. Uh, occasionally, we all get together as a company, have meetings. A lot of what we're trying to do right now is really... Uh, uh, we're at a fun time in, in our startup right now where a lot of the day in my life is like, okay, what is it that I can do that will be quick, that I, we can get out, that we can gather analytics on, and that we can test? Because we're starting to try and tighten the loop. We've gotten uh, what we feel like positioning fit, uh, and we're trying to find product market fit. So a lot of it now is just uh, kind of deliberate thinking ahead planning what can we do? A lot of planning, a lot of writing down notes, and a lot of doing uh, smaller tickets and thinking ahead. 
like we just had in like an entire day where we're like, okay, what are our SLAs going to be? What do we, uh, what do we want to think about in terms of processes? Do we want to do DASI frameworks? Do we want to do anything like that? So I don't know. It's, it's a fun blend between a day in life right now is fun blend between I'm just writing code to I'm literally setting the foundations for an actual real life company. And just all those things that were made for your previous companies, we've got to figure it the hell out right now. So it's a fun blend. Nice. Uh, Mike? Yeah, so it's uh, it's kind of hard to do a, a day in the life. Um, it's more of a, a, a week in the life. Um, Monday is very much um, kind of like a, a setting expect expectations for the week. So um, getting the whole engineering team aligned on, you know, um, the sprint backlog, um, all hands. Um, I, I might have some time to code in the afternoon, more than likely some meetings because Monday is a, a day in the office day. Um, I try to reserve Tuesday and Wednesday to like really sit down and focus on the code, but we're so early that there are times, you know, I have to be on call. Um, and it's not an engineering on call. It's, um, it's, uh, like, you know, customer success on call type situation. So really like just, you know, doing whatever needs to be done. If I need to go hang flyers at laundromats to recruit people, I'm going to do it. Um, Thursday is another in-office day. That day is typically um, focused on um, like meeting with the founders and kind of like aligning our vision toward our uh, you know, OKRs and, you know, what is our progress toward those things. And then, um, oh, I forgot, like Monday, Tuesday are very much like one-on-one -on -one days and like setting the vision for, you know, the people that report to me and just making sure, you know, everything's coach. Um, and then Friday for me is very much a um, kind of, I really, I, I really enjoy like kind of wrapping my week up in a bundle. And like, so like, let's get everything done. Let's tie off any loose ends, have any like final meetings I need to have. I really enjoy like entering my weekend without hopefully trying to worry about work, although that doesn't happen all the time. But I, I really try to like just bundle my my week into the Monday through Friday uh, perspective. Nice. Um, so for me, it, it's really kind of depends on the time of the year and the projects that are happening. Um, so I'll give you kind of right now. So right now we're in the middle of a ton of projects that have to be done before the end of the year for um, regulatory issues because things have to be uh, a certain way on one one. Right. So right now my days look like uh, in the morning I spend about an hour drinking coffee, checking emails, um, checking slacks, things like that, really just kind of getting any fires that came up before I was awake handled. And I kind of make a plan for the day, figure out, okay, what does this day look like? What do I want to get done? Um, I spend about the next hour or so doing any prioritizations, any research on things I need from other people. That way, hopefully, I have everything I need to get started. Um, and then I'll try to do a few hours block out with coding or um, whether I'm actually working on it. Might not actually be code; it might be some kind of architecture or specs or something like that. Um, and then, like Thursdays, we have scheduled releases with different clients that have regulatory issues that are timed. Um, and Fridays, I kind of do my morning routine, uh, and then after that, we have a team group uh, hangout where we just kind of hang out for a couple hours. We're all still kind of work during the hangout, but we're just chatting in the midst of it, and 
work pace is definitely slower. Um, so Fridays are really different, but the general idea is to get a little social interaction with the team. And then after that call on Fridays is similar to Mike, it's about wrapping up the week and trying to put a nice bow on the week. Uh, so that's an interesting topic, Mike, actually. How much, how much coffee does everyone drink here? I'm, uh, I'm about a pot a day guy. I use a French press and I get whole beans and a grinder. And it sounds delightfully hipster and fancy, but the only reason why I have these things is because it limits me to a single French press a day, as opposed to the fact that when I had a drip coffee machine, I was doing two pots a day. Two pots. Wow. I have a problem, and I refuse to admit it. No, I feel you. Uh, last year, I got up to what I was at, like ten espressos a day, which it seems like a lot. But it's not like doubles or triples. <laughs> you know what? My mom always told me that coffee would stunt my growth, and I never believed her. That's what did it. <laughs> I was going to say, Ben, that doesn't seem like a lot. That is a lot. Um, no, while I was at uh, Udacity, I actually, I don't think I really thought about it or did it intentionally, but like I had a cup of coffee at home, and then I had a, like a mocha at work. Um, and then I eventually just stopped having um you know, the, the mochas at work and I have one coffee when I woke up and now I'm trying to transition to, to, uh, you know, when I wake up, just teas in the morning and not coffee. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not really into coffee. I'll reach for the coffee if I'm absolutely dragging ass and I feel like I need it just to perk me up a little bit, but for the most part, no, I'm, I'm relatively caffeine free. So uh, when I worked for my very first company, uh, it was like a startup and we worked crazy hours. And I was one of those people who said, I never want to be someone who relies on coffee. And uh, we had to pull an all-nighter one time and work the next day. So at, after pulling the all-nighter and still continue on through the day, I was like falling asleep at my desk. Went to this corner store, got a large cup of coffee with cream and sugar in it. And I've drank it every day since. And that was like 15 years ago. Uh, I was in the same boat as Daniel, though. I was drinking like a pot a day. And now I've switched to having a French press, which keeps me to one in the morning. And then I have a nice homemade cold brew in the afternoon. And I don't have highs or lows. I just have a nice, steady, consistent, happy vibe. You know, 10 espressos, you don't really have highs or lows either. <laughs> you have on and on. <laughs> Did you start tasting color at that point? Like, it's, it's amazing how quickly you adapt. <laughs> all right, uh, so we're way over time. Let's wrap this up. Uh, all right, so for each of you, where can people find you on the interwebs and what conference or event will you be at next? Uh, or maybe the next couple ones. So if someone wants to hang out with you and chat, where could they do that? Uh, Amanda. So I'm actually done traveling for the year, which is amazing. What? Yeah. Like, wow. I may have one thing coming up in November. Or I might be in London, but it's not like a guaranteed thing yet. Um, and then other than that, you won't see me until February at Sunshine PHP. Um, if you want to make words with me on the internet, you can find me on Twitter at Ambassador Awesome, where awesome is spelled A-W-S-U-M because yay character limits. Nice. Chris? Uh, I'm not sure what my next conference is going to be. Now that we've slowed down with work, I want to get back to speaking, so I'll start applying to some soon, uh, but not sure what that is. 
Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Bowden underscore C. Hit me up. Love to chat. Uh, Daniel. Um, I don't really have any conferences planned coming up. Uh, I organize uh, Empire JF. So when we, we just had that a couple months ago. Uh, so you can find me there. I also organize Queens.js here in New York City. So you can find me at uh, queensjs.com. Uh, we have our sister meetups, Manhattan JS and Brooklyn JS are also a lot of fun too. If you're either local, if you're traveling in, uh, you can find me on the internets at, at Bikuzino on Twitter. Uh, you probably can't spell that, so you'll never see me again. Uh, it's nice knowing you. Uh, having a difficult French last name has uh, done that to my life. But yeah, it's been fun. Is that how like most of your dates end? There's like, no, I can't do that last name. That's how I, that's whenever things go terribly and I say something awkward, I'm like, good, they'll never be able to Google search me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Mike Wells. Yeah, so uh, I am intentionally not jumping on the conference circuit after uh, three years at Udacity. I'm a little overwhelmed. Um, so you can find me anywhere on the internet uh, at, at WalesMD. That's W-A-L-E-S-M-D. And I'm happy to uh, you know connect with you. Um, I'm also trying to really connect in the Chicago Tech Slack. So if you're in the area, um, reach out to me. Cool. Uh, I also do not, I don't think, have anything else the rest of the year, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and you can catch me on Twitter at Ben Edmonds. Um, no spaces. All right. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, thanks for everyone to watch and listen. Uh, I know this has been a, like a marathon show, but hopefully it was entertaining and informative. For a lot of people, we covered a lot of topics. Um, so really feel, feel free to re- reach out to either myself, Amanda, or any of the guests here with any additional questions you have or something we covered. Um, we'll be happy to help. Um, yeah, so thank you.